Welcome to the Starting Over Stronger Show, where you'll find help and hope for your divorce survival and recovery. Divorce well, live well. Hello and welcome back to the Starting Over Stronger Divorce Survival and Recovery Show. We are back this fall with a new project and that is reading of my memoir, which I was so grateful to have finally published this past month. And again, I just want to say thank you for your patience as I paused through the early uh, fall, late summer of this year to finish up this writing project and get it published and launched. And I am excited to be back here again for the second week to be reading this book to you. If you have not yet, please go order your own copy of the book. You can get an ebook or a paperback on Amazon. Simply search Amazon for Starting Over Stronger and it will come up. It's in one of the top two or three results usually, so you shouldn't have any trouble finding it. I'll put a link in the show notes, so it will be even that much easier for you. Uh, Last week, we got through chapters one and two, along with the introduction and some acknowledgments and stuff, And, and so we're ready to pick up this week with chapter three. Again, as I mentioned last week, I don't know how much I'm going to read each week. I'm just going to see how it goes, how long it takes. Uh, Each chapter is a little bit different in length, so we'll just do what we can each week for 30, 45 minutes, and then we will pick it up the following week, and we should be through it this fall sometime. So again, I want to remind you before I get started reading that if you haven't yet, I'd love for you to go over and introduce yourself on the Starting Over Stronger After Divorce group on Facebook. And of course, if you are in a situation where you need support through a divorce, you can find all kinds of great information at startingoverstronger.com. There's links there, in fact, to order the book. There's links to this podcast, a blog, a ton of great information about coaching and how to get the support you need as you're going through divorce. So please just check it out and see what is there that might help you if you are in that situation. And so now I'm just going to go ahead and get started reading again. We're going to pick it up again at chapter three, and the title of that is chapter three, Growing Up is Hard to Do, and this is ages five to 16. Zip, zip. When I was around five years old, we moved from Archie to Raytown, Missouri, and there began a series of moves that would be the norm for my growing up. In total, I will have lived in six different houses in three different cities over the next 11 years. From the age of five on, what I can recall of my life is like watching a movie reel and fast forward, and each memory has the definite backdrop of one of these houses that I was in at the time. Not today's next Netflix fast scene skip, but the old-fashioned kind of fast-forward. Remember? Blockbuster video. Be kind. Please rewind. 
Remember, watching a movie and getting a phone call or a parent yelling for you to come downstairs right in the middle of it, if you forgot to push pause, like I often did, you were going to have to rewind. No, not that far. Fast forward, play, still too far back. Fast forward some more, play, nope, already watched this scene too. Zip, zip, as I used to say to my kids when I wanted them to fast forward through the commercials on the DVR. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. (laughs) Back to the 1990s, blockbuster movie. Fast forward a little bit more, almost. Oh yeah, this happened right before the interruption. Now we can get back to the show. Like this old familiar experience of life with at-home movie watching from back in the day, my life and the memories I can recall feel much like a series, a collection of scenes that I can zip through. What happens between these stops and starts is anyone's guess. The scenes that fly by are mostly a big hairball of pain, confusion, and learning avoidance. People, places, houses, experience, all jumbled up in my mind, all tumbling out here for you. When I think about my grade school years, I always think of the Raytown side-to-side split-level home on Laurel that we moved to before I started school. It was behind one of the big local parks, Coleman Park. The Laurel home holds the first memories I would be able to recall. Actual memories of my own, not scenes from pictures shown to me by relatives or told to me. Soon after moving there, I started kindergarten. My school, Blue Ridge Elementary, was about a mile from our new home. Here is where I met my best friend, Staley, and my first bully. As luck would have it, Sean was the only bully I ever had to deal with, but I dealt with him my entire elementary school career, so one was enough. We were classmates through high school graduation, but thank goodness he was only a mean bully to me during elementary school. I don't know who they are, but they say boys chase and tease girls that they think are cute, so I must have been hot stuff to Sean. He terrorized me at every recess for my entire five years at that school. I could not even ride my bike from my house to my best friend's house without passing his house, often being pelted with rocks in the process if he was around. When I think about it now, it bothers me that people minimize and desensitize young girls to being taught to accept mistreatment by boys as an act of admiration. It is not a precedent anyone intends to set, but it is set nonetheless, and much to the detriment of women throughout their lives. The years-long recess game of cooties played at my expense, And the fast and furious bike rides trying to make it to Staley's house unscathed often produce the familiar wonderings of when I try to summarize all the years of childhood abuse at the hands of my father. How many times did it happen? How many recess cooties games were played? How many fearful bike rides were taken over those five years of elementary school? Were these specific memories the sum total of all incidents that scarred me so deeply that it feels like it went on for years? Or did it happen a thousand times? These most vivid memories of my childhood on Laurel are the most vivid for a reason. 
The intensity of the memories means they likely happened many times, but the truth is that even if they only happened a few times, they made the same heavy impression on my young heart and mind, and how they affected me is what matters. The intensity, not the frequency, of the events of your life are what matter for you. The house on Laurel holds memories from within the home as well. Within this home, replay a collage of happy and sad memories. From sledding in the park behind the house and riding my bike the other way, away from Sean, to a dog named Dolly. My only memories of Dolly are that she was white and that she got away once when a spring storm blew down a panel of the back fence. We never saw her again. It occurred to me that perhaps my parents did see her again, knew she'd gotten hit by a car, and decided not to tell us kids. That sounds like something I've seen in movies or heard of other parents doing, but based on everything else from my childhood, I don't think that is what happened. My parents weren't exactly the kind of people who made a habit of being overly cautious of their kids' feelings. I always hoped someone found her, and that when they were unable to find her owners, she lived out the rest of her days with a loving family. It was probably a better life for her. I wonder what loving family would have taken me in if I had run away when the wind blew the fence down. One of the big memories of my time living in the Laurel House was of playing this game of bike riding make-believe, which never had a name. We said we were going to ride bikes, and we disappeared for hours at a time, and our parents didn't care. This game consisted of each driveway on the street being designated as a different store or restaurant, and we would pretend to be adults with errands to run, appointments to go to, and people to see as we rode from one driveway to another. I wonder if my friends ever wondered about the stories that I made up. We must have played that game a thousand times. We memorized certain neighbors' driveways, the driveway of Mrs. Rash, the music teacher at school, and my next-door neighbor, was always the grocery store. The house on the other end of the street was as far as we were allowed to go before the busy street. It was always the McDonald's. I think we passed a whole lot of time as kids just fantasizing about being adults. Little did we know. The other F word. My mom turned 40 while we lived at the house on Laurel. She did that thing so many of us do at those Hallmark years. She went from a busy or sedentary lifestyle to the best shape of her life in several months' time. She then ran a race, maybe a 5 or 10K. It was a big deal. I remember her training often during that season. On race day, I vaguely recall a picture taken of her with the bib pinned on. I've always wondered if this run was her idea or my dad's. I remember him dropping her off a mile from home where she would run the rest of the way back. I also remember him being judgmental and vocal about she, what she didn't need to eat. He used the F word that makes every woman cringe, fat. He came from a long line of tall, lean people, and my mom descended from Arkansas, where they cooked everything in bacon grease, and as a result were rounder along with being shorter. 
My dad's disapproving looks from across the room at family gatherings, if Mama put too much food on her plate, was, in hindsight, disgusting. What's worse were the times he said out loud, sometimes loud enough for others to hear, that she needed to put something back or skip a certain meal. My mother knew better than to complain. I suppose she would have paid for it later. At the time she was training for that race, she drove a golden-brown Camaro with racing stripes. In fact, the photograph with the bib was taken in front of that sporty car. I still can't believe my dad let her get. She was in the best shape I had ever or would ever see her in at this point in time. She looked proud of herself with her completed race ribbon a look I expect she was not well acquainted with as she allowed my father to systematically restrict any God-given potential she may have had. She rarely attempted much. We were all in survival mode, a state my mother knew all too well. She never seemed to take an interest in doing anything differently. She never went for a degree. She didn't pursue a career. She went to the Jones Store School of Cosmetology, and she learned to cut hair. And I recall being told later in life that this wasn't her idea and she didn't really like doing it. My dad made her, no doubt because we needed the money and he decided that would be what was best for her. She didn't even pour herself into raising her children as some homemakers do. She did it. She kept us fed and clothed, but I would never describe myself or my siblings as her pride and joy. She did not in any way that I can recall choose a different life or mindset for herself to this day. I wish I could forget. In my older elementary years, the tension began to grow at home. Perhaps it is more accurate to relate that I may have gotten old enough to be more perceptive of it or to remember it more all these years later. This tension seemed to be centered around my oldest sister, although I had no idea of why at the time. Later, I learned what had happened to her. At 15, she got pregnant, and before or after that, she was experimenting with drugs as well. Her behavior elicited more tension in my parents, or at least my father, over time. Being six years apart, she and I were never close. I don't recall if there were times in my early years that she might have been loving and kind to me. All my recollections of her are of a sullen, dramatic tone where she always seemed to be causing trouble and being unkind to everyone. I had no idea at the time, but later learned that she had been traumatized by molestation from a family member outside our home as a young girl. I was much older when I learned of it, and it was always told as if she had done something wrong by acting out because of it. When a short-term stay at a residential treatment facility yielded her tearful confession of what had happened back when she was six or eight years old, she was met with the worst parental response possible. My father telling her, essentially, that was a long time ago. He was young then, but he's married now with a family. We're not going to ruin his life over this. You need to move on. It wasn't until I had a daughter the age that she had been that I would attempt to connect with her. Despite having no relationship to speak of, I called to let her know that I was sorry for what had happened to her, even if no one else in our family ever really acknowledged her pain. 
It seemed to mean a lot to her at the time. I do remember her crying on the phone that time. But it did not become the impetus for a closer relationship with her that I had hoped it might. On summer nights, our whole family sat on pallets, folded blankets on the floor with pillows borrowed from our beds to stay cool on those hottest nights of the year. The living room was the only room in the Laurel House with a window air conditioner. Each December, that room, with its dark, shabby orange carpet, dark wood-paneled walls, and drab brown and gold curtains, would boast a Christmas tree, blocking the only light source in the room, a big plate glass window. The only Christmas morning that I recall was when I was around probably six or seven years old. That year, I received around a dozen different gifts, all of which were branded with strawberry shortcake. Once again, this memory is derived predominantly from pictures taken of us kids near the tree, each with our own pile of loot, and then all together with the whole four-kid payload. Filed in my brain right alongside these enjoyable and inconsequential moments are the beginnings of the memories that I would rather forget. Like dragging the needle off the soundtrack album of my life, Scratch, I am suddenly frozen, struck by the moments that seem to stop everything that might have been good about growing up, like Strawberry Shortcake. The most memorable of these dark moments was an argument between my mother and dad that took place in the kitchen at the house on Laurel. My father is angry, yelling about something. The anger is growing, and I am bracing for the worst. Trying to stay out of sight, out of mind, hiding. This, of course, was one of the many times I witnessed such an event. Maybe I recall it vividly because it was the first time, but that is unlikely. Maybe it's just the first I can recall. These are the memories I wish I could forget. And this is without a doubt where I learned that avoidance that would plague me the rest of my life. Was it something my mom did or said that he deemed wrong? Maybe not. It could have had nothing to do with her. She was his punching bag for the many upsets in his life that I don't think he ever looked in the mirror to find the source of. It's entirely impossible to know the context of every moment of abuse in my childhood home. All I know for sure is the fear I could see in her eyes and the fright I could hear in her voice as she begs him to stop, replaying and echoing in the memories. Bob, no! The memory is in black and white, muted by time, as if from an old movie. My breath is held while the abuse played out before my innocent eyes. My father, the man who should love and protect us above all else, has turned into a monster, terrorizing my mother, first with his words, then with a single violent slap across her face. Her glasses flew across the kitchen, coming to rest far out of her reach. And like that, whether it ever did feel safe before, my world would never be the same. If I still held any notions that my life was normal or that I was safe, I would question all of that from here on. If you cannot trust in the basic goodness of the people who brought you into this world to be good and kind and loving with one another, what can you trust? 
Who can you trust? This is a question I would ask myself a million times throughout the course of my life. When I close my eyes and let the memory reel of my grade school years play, these are the snapshots that emerge. Undoubtedly, many more incidents that I can or wish to even try to recall. I am thankful our brains have this uncanny ability to filter out what we do not need to remember, to tuck those things away for another day perhaps when we are ready to process them through more mature filters, to only remember what is needed and good for us. Someone important to me, who you will meet in more detail later, once told me that God will reveal what we are ready to have healed. When I recount each of these vivid scenes, it makes me realize again that all I need to know is that this happened. I needed to have a few incidental memories in order to understand the patterns of my life. To be able to process the feelings and assess the limiting beliefs that would emerge because of what happened to me as a child. But I did not need to carry the burden of remembering every single incident. So God protected me from it. What a good God. This is the God I know and love. The only thing good about the 80s was the music. Time marched on and my family moved again. Now it is the 80s, an era that is best known for its big hair and great music. I would be in sixth grade with this move. Had we stayed at the Laurel House, I would have started middle school. But in the much larger South Kansas City School District, I would instead be the upperclassman at the elementary school. These were pivotal years. I was growing up. But this felt like a demotion. Our new home on South 96th Street was a little bigger than the house on Laurel. Another side-to-side split, but with a third level with a suite big enough to be two full-size bedrooms, which were shared by my sister closest in age and I. This tri-level home offered five bedrooms, which was good because our family was about to grow. We stayed in this home just long enough for me to get partway through middle school and to meet another best friend for those few years while the struggles within my family continued to worsen. Angie lived on the street behind me with her grandparents, Lloyd and Mary. Angie's mom was in and out of the picture, mostly out, reminding me a lot of the struggles my parents were having with my oldest sister, who turned up pregnant at just 14. I think I only met Angie's mom once in all the years we lived on 96th Street. Lloyd and Mary ran a restaurant next to a bowling alley. Angie may tell you she grew up in that restaurant. I remember going with her there a lot, too, probably during the long summer days when my mom was at the shop cutting hair. Angie and I clicked right away. It's easy to say we gravitate to one of the kids that lives the closest to us, but I think it runs deeper than that. I believe we gravitate to the souls with whom we have shared some important things. When I think back about my childhood best friends, Staley in elementary school and Angie in middle school, I can see our lives were somewhat different, but in important ways, they were maybe quite similar. Staley was being raised by a single mom, an only child, as I recall. 
I think she had half siblings from her dad that she may have gone to see on occasion. Angie was being raised by her grandparents, an only child, and I don't recall ever a mention of a father, and her mother was absent a lot of this time of her life also. I was being raised in what may have had the outward appearances of a normal nuclear family with a married parents to four children, one intact family unit. I would not speak for how either of my early besties might feel about their childhoods, but my experience growing up alongside them for many years is that their raising and mine had things in common, despite the apparent differences. The thing is, the older I get, the more I wonder whose upbringing was without struggle and pain. Having a single mom would be hard. Not knowing or spending much time with your dad would be hard. Not having your mom be consistently present, physically or emotionally, during your growing up years would be hard. Being raised by your grandparents would be hard. Living in a home where you feel, never feel, a bond or connection with your mom is hard. Being hit by your angry father is hard. And watching him hit your mom is hard. We look back now with the wisdom of three to four more decades of life in the rearview mirror. Finding peace with the past is all about acceptance. Life is hard, and we don't often get to choose our hard when we are just kids. I have worked hard through many twists and turns as an adult to find peace and acceptance with the kind of hard I endured as a kid. More to come later on how I have done that. I hope Staley and Angie have found this peace and acceptance as well. So what did I have in common with these girls that would make us practically inseparable for large chunks of our growing up years? Hard to say. I wonder if it's not so much our commonalities, but perhaps it is that as children, our friends are like mirrors that reflect back to us the beauty that we cannot see in ourselves. Or simpler yet, maybe our childhood friendships are the purest forms of friendship, where we look to those whom we are lucky enough to live nearby, and we care about nothing except smiling and enjoying and having fun. It's remarkable how many people we meet across the expanse of our lives that we call friend. All friendships exist for a reason or a season, but as I reflect on my childhood friends, they particularly seem to me most of all to show me like an old photo photograph, who I used to be and how I've grown. The most meaningful reflection of these foundational friendships for me is this feeling of a safe space. Parents are human. As I said, parents mess up. As a parent myself, I know it's not intentional. We do the best we can with what we know at the time we are raising our children and because we are often still working on healing our own childhood wounds, or we're not even fully aware of them, we fail to be everything our kids need. Knowingly or unknowingly, parents can wound their children more deeply than anyone can. I don't know if my childhood friends felt this too, so I speak for myself in saying that my parents were not my safe place. If I had a safe place... 
I wonder if what drew me to my elementary and middle school best friends was a camaraderie of searching for someone or something to restore our basic trust in the goodness of people. Whether intentional or not, I think we were being this safe space for one another. They certainly were for me. These two girls at alternating times during my young life were more of a safe place than my own home, more than my own parents, more than either of them probably knew, certainly more than I even knew at that time. I hope they can say the same for me. They may not have feared a parent like I feared my father, and they may not have felt emotionally abandoned by their mother like I felt but they certainly had fears. Staley and Angie were, each, at their respective times in my life, my person. I am so thankful for their presence in my young life. Other than the strength of my best friendships, the only memories that surface about these years were of the ongoing turmoil in my home. I am forever grateful to these girls for being the escape I know I needed. Maybe the most extraordinary thing about our childhood friends is simply in the fact that our roots are all tangled up together. No matter where life may take each of us, we are inextricably woven together from our origins because we share these roots. No matter your upbringing, times were different back in the late 70s and early 80s. Kids could disappear all day to play on the block and even in neighboring woods with friends. I could ride my bike for hours, stay over at a friend's house, go to sleepovers with friends my parents knew nothing about. I could hang out with friends whose deaf parents had no idea what they were up to or at their apartment homes on the other side of the woods. Think the other side of the tracks where better parents may not have let their kids go. My parents often had no idea where I was, nor did they seem to care. I know I better be home before it was dark. I was quite used to not being paid attention to. It was all I had ever known. No one in my family took an interest in getting to know me the way my friends did. I did not play sports. My parents didn't take an interest in in me developing any talent or interests. No one came into my world to take an interest in my thoughts or feelings to do anything more than meet my basic physical needs of food, shelter, clothing, and education. No one cared if I was around until they needed me for something, to set the table or do my homework or clean my room. Otherwise, I think they preferred that I, and maybe all children, be out of sight and out of mind. That is how it felt. This early form of neglect and rejection was how I learned to not need anyone. The transition from elementary school to middle school is a common rite of passage. Many people regard it as a coming-of-age season, of starting to see the world in new and different ways, awakening more and more to the ways of the world as I was at age 11 and 12 at the house on 96th Street. In the sixth grade in 1984, I was not only awakening to the harsh realities of the abuse I had and was continuing to experience and witness, but something even deeper, something I felt to the core of my being and my existence in the world, was being felt. I was suddenly becoming more aware of things about myself that I did not like and could not change if I wanted to. 
I am certain the harsh words and actions of my father played a big part in the never-good-enough feelings of lack I was discovering as I came into adolescence. On top of that, I had always struggled with terrible allergies, always sneezing and needing to blow my nose. I always had to wear glasses. My given name was an easy one to make fun of. In elementary school, kids can be relentless in this way, right? But as we enter middle school, this takes on a different feeling. As teenage hormones begin to flood your body, everything feels different, hurts more, and can make you question everything. And question everything, I did. Middle school is a miserable existence of perpetual discomfort. We've taken a cute but abused and awkward blonde girl and added raging female hormones influxes, crippling self-esteem issues. Let's sprinkle in a not-well-adjusted relative and see what happens. One day, I complained to one of my aunts about how much I hated my name. She didn't ask why. She didn't care about that. But I will tell you, the reason was because it was an old lady's name. I had never met anyone who shared my name who was closer in age to me than 20 years my senior or more. I wanted to have a cool name. Even my sisters had given names that were popular for the time. My name made me feel so out of place. I already had this long and deeply seated feeling that I didn't belong because of the abuse and neglect I was enduring. So having a name that literally made me stand out felt to me like confirmation that I definitely did not belong. If I felt that way before I confided in my aunt, the way I would feel after this conversation would become a part of my identity like I could never have imagined. You know why you have that name, don't you? She said with her callous, unsettling laugh. It was a laugh that made me feel like she was truly enjoying ruining people's lives. No, why? Two words I would spend much of the rest of my life regretting having spoken out loud. These two simple words invited a cruel and unnecessary observation that I never needed to know, which changed my life for the worse forever. Because your mom was so upset that you were another girl, the third girl, that she refused to name you. Your dad had to come up with something. <laughs> she trailed off, cracking herself up. Full stop. You may or may not understand the magnitude of those words, but they are perhaps some of the most damaging words ever spoken over my life. Three major blows in that single sentence. One, the man responsible for all the abuse I had endured and witnessed as a child was the one who had given me the name I so despised, the name that never felt like it belonged to me. Two, here in this tragic moment, my family member, someone who should love and protect me, instead could not hide her amusement with her big reveal. I, on the other hand, probably did hide the painful reality that she had cruelly ushered me into. I learned a long time ago it did no good to share your feelings. It would be best to keep the pain inside, like I had always done. And three, I had been handed all the confirmation an abused and ignored little girl could ever need. Not only was my mom unhappy about my not being a boy, a fact my mother later denied, but we already know she has little recall of the past, and why would my aunt just completely make that up? 
And not only did my abuser give me a name I was ashamed of my whole life, but now I really was certain that all my lifelong fears were true. I was not wanted. My very name was the seal on that reality. What's in a name? Flash forward, I'm now 44 years old, no longer the traumatized teen feeling lost in a world where life and family could be so cruel. I'm about to enter the greatest season of transition in my life. Certain that divorce is around the corner despite all my efforts to avoid it. Knowing I will be starting a career because I will have no other choice after being a full-time homemaker for two decades. Moving to a new part of town. Knowing I will lose family and friends in this transition, yet not knowing just how many. And carrying a strong awareness that everything in my life was about to totally change. For better and for worse. Something said to me a couple years previously rose into the forefront of my attention. A suggestion made by Tammy Person. You'll hear more about Tammy later. She was such a huge influence in the breakthroughs of healing I would experience in my early 40s. One of the ways Tammy made a difference was by a statement she made that was so simple it was dumbfounding. I had been sharing with her the depths of how much negative connotation and pain my name always held when she said, so change it. I still remember the laugh that burst forth. The look on my face must have said, you're crazy. My reply was as absolute and simple as her statement. You can't do that. In my mid-40s, everyone knew me by my former name. I could not suddenly change it. With that same simplicity and resolution, Tammy said, sure you can. She told me about her adopted daughter who had been abandoned by her parents. Tammy and her husband, Jerry, had taken this friend of their biological daughter in and raised her as their own. She felt much the same way I felt about her own name. So, as part of her adoption into Tammy's family, when she would have changed her last name regardless, she selected a new first and middle name, too. I sat on that thought for almost two years. Then, one random day, I brought the subject up again with Tammy. I had never asked her much about her daughter's decision before, so now I did. So, how old was she, I asked, thinking she was probably a teenager when this happened much younger than me. Five. See, five? I bet no one thought a thing of it. She was in a whole new world anyway, with a new family and a new place. Most people in her new life probably never even knew she changed it and only knew her as her new name, right? I wasn't yet ready to admit I had come to love this idea. Sounds like someone else I know, she retorted. Suddenly, I realized... Everything I had just said about Tammy's daughter's whole new world at age five was about to be 100% true for me at age 44. I was about to select a new first and middle name. Change my name? To what? I didn't yet know, but I had run out of objections to the idea of making it a reality. Now I would encounter, with joy, the task of selecting my new name, with purpose as a way of casting a vision for the woman I would become. For months, I researched names and tried them on for size in my head, imagining how people would react. I explored what I would have to change and wondered how I would adapt to it myself. 
I spoke to my counselor about the idea. He saw the value as well and encouraged me that it would be no more difficult of a transition than the divorce, relocation, empty nest, and new career. I would be creating a new family of friends, much like the safe places of belonging I had many times created with friends throughout my life. Now seemed like the ideal time to give myself a new name, right along with the creation of a whole new life. Call it a flash of brilliance or momentary psychotic break, but it was decided. I would no longer be Barbara Joanne. I spent much time in thought, reflection, and prayer to arrive at what my new name would be and hired an attorney to make it official. Thank you for joining me again today for more reading in the Starting Over Stronger book. We have now made it to page 32, and we're not quite through chapter 3 yet, but it is a long one, so we're going to go ahead and stop today since we're 40 minutes in, and we'll pick it up again here on All's Unwell That Ends Unwell. And that will be next Wednesday. Thank you again for joining me. And I will look forward to being here again with you next week for more Starting Over Stronger, finding a pathway out of codependency to create a new life of peace.